Welcome to Gold Digging, where we dig for nuggets of gold through conversation with friends and family of Stephen Webster. Very exciting to be digging for golden nuggets with our first American guest and our first rock star guest. Keyboard player, co-songwriter and vocalist since day one with Bon Jovi. Classically trained pianist, rock and roll hall of famer, writer of several Broadway and West End musicals, including Diana the Musical, based on the story of Princess Diana and God help us, members of the British royal family. Gold Digging welcomes my really good friend, Dave Bryan, and thank you, Dave, for, uh, for agreeing to get up at the crack of noon to make this happen, because uh, you're on New Jersey time and uh, it's six o'clock somewhere, including where we are in London. So welcome, Dave. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be here. Yes, the crack of noon. It's a rock and roll morning. <laughs> it certainly is. And uh, I learned that one from you many years ago. So look, because it is six o'clock here, I'm going to have a drink, so I'm going to offer you one, even though it's only virtually. So you can have a brew dog Hazy Jane, or you can have a brew dog Punk IPA, or you can have a glass of champagne. I think I'll take the punk. You can take the punk. God damn it, that was the one I wanted. But anyway, okay. <laughs> I'll share it with you. There we go. I've opened it for you. Excellent. So um, I've got a lot to get through. So. Um, Trust me, I will, I will let you get a word in at some point. But I just wanted, I mentioned New Jersey. So you're in New Jersey and um, you were born, raised in New Jersey. You're talking to us from your phenomenal home in Colts Neck, New Jersey. So um, what is it about Jersey? Is, is it your Las Vegas or has is, is Jersey, just like Finland, got it all as far as you're concerned? I think, you know, it's, it's where you come from and that's where it's, uh, it's close enough to we're an hour away from New York. I'm 25 minutes to the beach. So it's, and then we're in the country here. So it's the woods and with horses, that's why it's Colt's neck, like a horse's neck. And, uh, it's just, it's home. That's I can't, you know, I, I can visit other places, but I, I live in New Jersey. Yeah. It's funny, you know, because I know quite a few of your friends and your are amazingly close with the people you grew up with. You, you know, your, your community's tight. And I suppose if you were in the middle of Manhattan, that pit doesn't really exist, does it? You sort of say, well, I've got some friends, they're somewhere in the city, but you guys get together a lot. It's, it's really great to see you. In fact, you go on holiday together. <laughs> exactly. I know, yeah, I get that. So, um, so we're going we're gonna to start at the beginning because we've got to have a little bit of order about this. So your dad, Addy Reshbaum, he, uh, he played the trumpet. Uh, now, I don't know if he played the trumpet to wake you up in the morning or for a living. I've got no idea. But that was a sort of a, a musical influence on you. And uh, yeah, maybe you can expand on that a bit. Uh, my dad actually played, he was a trumpet player. And then when I was five, he... Taught, he was playing trumpet all the time. He always had big band records playing like Al Hurt and uh, Dizzy Gillespie and you know, all these great jazz guys, big band stuff. And then I kind of learned a little bit when I was five and I saw that there was no future for me. I was like, I stink at this. I don't think I'm ever gonna be good at this. And um, then at seven, there was a piano, this, this uh, piano teacher actually retired to the town where my father's business was in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, 
And uh, my father found out about it. And at seven years old, he took me to audition for him. And I was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't play piano. And I walked in and he was uh, this Hungarian guy, had a bow tie. And he played, you know, out of this piece of wood. He was playing Bach and Brahms and Schubert and Schumann. I was like, that's the most beautiful music I've ever heard. I want to do that. And then I put my hands to it and I, I sucked. I didn't know what I'm doing. And he's like, you know, don't waste my time. And, and you know, you got to practice every day. I was like, well, I don't really have a clear concept of time. Kind of just learning to pee on my own without getting it all over me. And uh, there you go. And then I studied with him every Wednesday for 13 years. You know, I know you're very modest, but you're a bit of a one-man band. I mean, I, I've read it wasn't, yeah, okay, you excelled it there in the keyboard, but you, you could turn your hand to many an instrument, I suppose, yeah? Yeah, I got my hand on everything. You know, I played, uh, then I played a little guitar because I, I heard David Bowie, uh, Ziggy Stardust. When I heard that, I was like, oh, I have to play that song. So I took guitar lessons. Once I learned the song, I was done with guitar lessons. Then, uh... <laughs> In the band, I played violin. I played you know, in school band. I played violin and played every instrument I, I, I can get my hands on. Played drums. That was pretty cool. So obviously, you, you uh, at seven, you didn't have the gift, but very quickly, it was obvious you had a gift. So were your, you know, your, your father, obviously musical, was he, was he really encouraged by that? Was he sort of thinking this, this is a career opportunity for you or something that you might just enjoy? in your life? I think he saw like a seven-year-old kid practicing three hours a day, which even adult kids don't practice three hours a day. And he, he saw something in me. He was like, wow, whatever this kid is, is wants, he's definitely, he wants it. You know, I wanted to get good at it. So I just practiced as much as I could. And uh, he, he really saw that. You know, when you've got a kid that's at a piano for like, you come home after school and you're, you practice, you have dinner, you practice. You know, friends are coming over like, come on, let's go out and play baseball. I'm like, I need another hour and then I'll, I'll come and play with you. Right. Okay. Amazing. Because I um, it's quite funny because I was watching a film of you. I didn't, I didn't go to your induction into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but we were watching it together in, in your house at the Jersey Shore. And um, I think it was John, as in John Bon Jovi, was saying that, you know, you guys would all be you would you were probably just signed up i don't know you know early days but you'd all be like practicing like a rock band should but then there was dave who'd be bringing in his pre-med school homework <laughs> to the sessions because it feels where i'm angling on this it feels to me like you were okay i really love this music but maybe i need to think about having a proper job as well yeah i always believed in uh, some sort of backup plan you know so yeah. i and I, I was going to college. I got into Rutgers for pre-med and music. Then I was like, okay, we're still working with John and we're going into the city and recording in the studio. And then I was like, okay, I want to I be a classical piano player. And then I dropped out of medicine and went into classical and just practiced. Like, then I upped it to like 10 hours a day and practiced my face off and then got into, got into the school and then we got a record deal. So that's, I was like, okay, I'm gonna give this, you know, like a year. I'll give it one year. Cause you were playing, you were like a cover band before, weren't you? I guess like a garage -y type cover band, was that right? Before you formed Bon Jovi, the band. Yes, we were like a 10 piece cover band that played like Springsteen and Southside Johnny Nasbury Jukes and all those Memphis songs, like 
hold on, I'm coming in the midnight hour, knock on wood. You know, I love the blue eyed soul. I love that. And, um, but we were making, you know, like, uh, I was making seven bucks a night. It was a 10 piece band. Okay, that, that was my next line. <laughs> I know that that stuck with you, that one. I think it was yeah. as much as seven bucks a night, wasn't it? That was yeah. the top. Yes, that was, that was a good night. No wonder you had a backup plan. Yeah. But anyway, look, we, we're going to move on a bit. So when you were the first person that, that John called when, uh, when Bon Jovi, I guess, had got signed. And uh, this, we're talking like 83 or 84. Is that right? Yeah, during like during that whole period from like from 80, 81, 82, I would go. It was just John wasn't signed, but I would go into the studio because his cousin owned the power station, one of the greatest studios in New York City. And uh, they would give us recording time for free from four in the morning to 10 in the morning, you know, which is brutal. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, so we would watch, you know, at like all the Rolling Stones and, and Bowie and all these great fucking people. And Sheik would like walk out of the studio when we were walking in and we would just do these demos. And finally, in 82, we had Runaway. And that was in 83, we got signed by the record company. Oh, so you had Runaway before. That was so, the first song we got signed from. Right. So, so the first two albums, so Bon Jovi and 7,800 Degrees Fahrenheit, yeah? I don't know what that is in Celsius. But. <laughs> I had to look it up. Yeah, it's hot. Anyway, yeah. But um, so those, those first two albums, I, I don't know. Did, you had some, some success, did you? What, what was going on at that point? We had, so Runaway, we got signed. We went out there and we got a gold record in America, which is great. That's like 500,000 records. And then we started to tour endlessly all around the planet. I think we did 180 countries, you know, in like, in six, we just went crazy. Then we, the second record, we sold 800,000, but not a million. And the record company was like, listen, on the next record, if you don't sell a million records, we're going to drop you. It's over. We, you know, we, we, we put in two records for you. We spent a lot of money. You know, we were, in the, we were in the hole for a lot because it costs a lot of money to tour and make records. And uh, that that's was our, our situation at the end of that record. Came home and said, okay, it's the do or die record. And is that, to be honest, that kind of musical story of the third album, you know, I think a lot of bands certainly around the sort of generation you, you, you were in, um, you kind of had that, didn't you? The, there was that, you get to three, and if three's not massive, you're done. I guess if two was a complete failure, you're done anyway. But, because but I, I know from my friend Mick Jones, who's banned The Clash, you know, it was exactly the same. There was sort of, they were touring, there was stuff going on, but if, if the third one hadn't been as big smash, they were done. So fortunately for you, you had a thing called Slippery When, when Wet. And I think that's when things just went ballistic, yeah? Is that right? 100% correct, yeah. That was like the, the, like you have your whole life to write your first record, and then you have about two weeks to write your second record. And then you're like, holy shit, I better do something here. And we, you know, all the planets and moons lined up and we went up to Vancouver away from our house and uh, into this great studio and came up with this record and it was really our, it, it was the do or die. And we ended up 
selling, uh, we sold 15 million records in America and 15 million out. So we sold 30 million records, so. Okay, so that goes, so that, that would account for the money, the fame, the private jets and the hair. There was so much hair. I mean, I just love seeing pictures of you and all of the rest of the band in those 80s periods because, <laughs> I mean, you must have destroyed the ozone layer above Jersey, I think, just with the amount of hairspray you used because uh, it was a look, wasn't it? And boy, did those girls love that look. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, when you look back on it, you go, wow. And But at the time, I don't know if you have a product called Aquanet, but we had Aquanet hairspray. Which you I know can, exactly what it is. You could glue uh, posters to the wall. You know, it was some serious stuff. And yeah. uh, we definitely created the whole, the 80s was, uh, the ozone layer was uh, disappearing because of all the bands. So, so I just wanna, we can't just quickly go over this period because I think you've, you've just said it, you've got 30 million albums, how many were you, four or five? There's five, at the time it's five. Right, so you're five guys, you're now one of the biggest acts in the, on the planet, and, and were, were, were you able to fill a stadium at that time? When did that sort of start? We, well, that's when we went from head, you know, opening act to headlining of arenas, you know, indoors, and just headlined and headlined and played literally, you know, out of a year, we probably had 250 shows. It was like two on, one off, three on, one off, two on, one off in, in 100 countries and just went like maniacs, never stopped. I know, and you know, I mean, this is jumping a little bit, but I think this is one of the things that I just find so amazing is that, you know, if you, correct me if I'm wrong, but like 15 studio albums, 40 odd years later, apart from a very short kind of break called COVID, you guys have never really stopped. I mean, you still don't have a proper job, I know, and, uh, and, and you can still do what you do brilliantly, and that is fill an arena, fill a stadium, and, it, and it's just, what is it you think that over a period that's so long that you can still do that? Because, I mean, there's you and a couple of bands that can do that. Yeah, I, I really, it goes back to we were, we wanted to be a live band. You know, the studio was that, that's the reason why Slippery worked because I think the first two records were slick. They were studio slick. And then we would go out and play live and, and we would play the same, those songs live and people, we got way better of a reaction. So that's why Slippery was like, you know what? We're gonna make a live record kind, you know, not, not like um, overproduced with, 20 million keyboards and 20 million guitars. And then we're gonna do it, the video really helped because we're gonna be alive, like enough with this concept. You know, we're not actors and it's not a freaking movie. We're just gonna get on stage and show people what we do. And I think the endless touring and going around to every, you know, there was, you know, people in a mud hut in Vietnam could come out singing, you know, you give love a bad name. <laughs> Absolutely. Someone, do you know what, it's funny. Because I was, I was speaking to someone I know, and I was saying I was doing a podcast, and you said, oh my God, you've got to see this. Send me a video from down on the South Bank in London at the weekend, and there's a girl out there with an acoustic guitar singing, uh, hanging on, a, living on a prayer, and then there's this crowd just migrating. <laughs> and, and you think, 
What else would she be singing that the crowd would have just stopped and then all sing along? I mean, I've witnessed it many times with you, but this was not you. This was just a girl on an acoustic guitar. Phenomenal. And it really makes you smile, doesn't it? I mean, it makes you smile, but it makes, it makes everyone else smile. Makes me smile because that also too, like Slippery was when we were, I think it also defined uh, positiveness in our music, where it's, uh, you know, living on a prayer is, is something where you're like, we're from nowhere in New Jersey, where we were five guys from little places, you know, outside of, of New York. You know, we were the little town of, you know, in the shadows of New York City that, and, um, and we made it. And it's, and that's, I think those songs of hope, it really, it does work like that. And then, you know, the resurgence of It's My Life, you know, 2000, it's like those positiveness, I think people uh, latch onto and they enjoy 36 years ago. I mean, we were just in the South of France, as you know, uh, and I'm, I'm singing to the record to, with the DJ of, of Living on a Prayer and the whole place is going crazy. And you go, this is unbelievable. It's 36 years later. And I may well add that uh, one of those lunches <laughs> at the next table was Elton John and he got up and he did a sort of karaoke to, to something like one of his songs. He was nowhere near as good as you. I tell you, it was because uh, your voice is an amazing, you have an amazing rock and roll voice, which I think people are blown away. When, when you just get up in the middle of a restaurant, no one's expecting you to be that good. And I know when we were with Simon Le Bon the other evening, he certainly wasn't expecting you to be that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good party trick. Very good party trick, it really is. And I tell you, I've probably, because I'm always in the audience and the people next to me, if they have not heard you before, they're like, wow, his voice is amazing. <laughs> So just just because we've been mentioning about that magic, that thing that you said, you know, you want to play live because you made these tracks to be played live. So an, another another band that can pull that off, the Rolling Stones, and obviously we saw a passing of Charlie Watts. I don't know if you, did you know Charlie at all? Or you met him or? I met him briefly, just like a quick hello. But I mean, the Rolling Stones are like, you know, the fabric of of, of what I'm made up of. You know, it's <laughs> like they're... They're rock and roll. I actually just saw uh, there was a documentary on uh, Keith Richards last night we watched. And it was uh, it's great. You look at his whole history of blues and, you know, where he's he's with Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry was the reason why, you know, it's great. You know, the English started with, you know, yeah. black American blues and then did it their own version and sold it back to America. You know, it's pretty amazing. They packaged it up in some snake hips and uh, four relatively, well, one very good looking guy and three kind of good looking guys. Well, you know what, your story's not so different. But, no. um, so, you know what, and, and, and of course, Charlie was a massive jazz fan, and, uh, you know, that was his real passion, and he was, the, he was the one stone that felt like he was the cleanest living dude. You know, he sort of finished, go home, go back to his wife, you know, have a cup of tea probably, and, and always looked amazing, and then, out, out of the latter stones, I know earlier there was a there was a death in the in the family, but you know uh, the rest out outlive him, and I, I guess Keith's just going to outlive humanity, probably, isn't he? It's impossible to kill, that's for sure, and he's tried, 
<laughs> oh, yeah. They always said, you know, that's what's going to be left on Earth is Keith Richards and cockroaches. <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah. So so going back to those days, because, you know, you've shared some amazing stories with me of, of your touring. And uh, and, um, you know, the fact that you can sort of say, uh, have you been to Japan? Yeah, I've played there 30 times or everywhere. You've played everywhere. You just said 250 gigs a year. I mean, my God, you've got to be made of stern stuff and then of course along the way you you know uh some people kind of fall victim to what it takes to be to maintain that pace and i know bon jovi have had uh you know some casualties like every rock band and i, I wondered you know when when you've got when it's obvious that your bandmate who becomes your family member is struggling how how is it within the band? Do, you know, do people rally round? Because it always feels like, you know, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely rally around because we're, you know, us five guys went through stuff that, out of seven billion human beings, you know, there's not a lot of human beings that get to do it. You know, to be blessed with what we've done, and yeah, we rallied around. Uh, our bass player, Alec, you know, rallied around him and he just, you know, drugs just took him out, you know, mm. and we tried through rehab and, you know, uh, Tico, our drummer went once and he was successful. Uh, Alec, not so successful. Richie was six years of battling addiction, you know, and uh, it's it's sad. You know, it's like then you got to one point of like tough love where you're not help when helping hurts. Yeah, well, I can imagine. And of course, in the end, you know, this is a profession. And, and I guess you do everything you can, I'm imagining, and then in the end, like you say, there's only so much you can do, probably if someone's not even prepared to, or, or their demons are too big. But you know, it, it's just even hearing you speak, you, you, I don't think anyone would question why you get, you know, addictions and, and sort of just needs that you don't require in other forms of life. Of course, you get people who fall by the wayside in all sorts of life, but the pace of rock and roll, it, it, uh, it just sort of draws you in and you've got to be there for the ride I'm, or, or, or you're not, and that's it. I always like it so that you're just reminding me of like the feeling of when you're, okay, it's day one for the tour. You know, like you do, we do our rehearsals and then you're like, you pack your bags, they picked that all up. You look and you go, okay. <laughs> We're gonna do this again. Like, you know, when we go back on the road, it's that, okay, okay, keep your head down, keep running as hard as you can. And the biggest commitment to me is, you know, life is the hard part. I, I, I always love Ronnie Wood had the greatest quote. He goes, I can't wait to walk on stage so and get some fucking peace and quiet. <laughs> that's right. You know, that's the easiest part of life. You know, that's, that's the greatest part of your day. You know, you, you're out there. And when you're younger, you're partying, you know, now we're not partying. So your whole existence is to get out there and give it your, your, the best that you can. But I mean, like, if we look at you, right, you know, you're my friend, you, you're not NA, you're not AA, you, you still like to enjoy life, you like to have a drink, you know, you, you like to stay up late, you like being the rock star, you're extremely good at it. But I know from when you need to work, you just shut down and you work 
and it is amazing to be honest it really is i mean you had that ability to just do that you sort of go right now i'm either i'm writing now for a period because i know you go off and you'll be writing for months or or it's now you know rehearsal time and and then it then it's then it's pro i guess it's just your downtime you you just want to chill out and manage it very well yeah it's it's really yeah when it's when it's go time you got to work you know and then that's the one i've been fortunate enough i guess wherever my demons aren't as big as everybody else or you know those people's demons but i always look and said okay it's i love what i do and i do what i love and i and since i'm seven and i would never ever give that up for anything no well it's amazing and it shows i mean i actually one of the things i was going to ask you about was is when you can sit at a keyboard and you've got the whole room, everybody around you, because you're just such a master with the keyboard. And then when I remember seeing you on stage for the first time with, you know, with Bon Jovi, and you got three keyboards, right? There was, I'm sure there was an extra hand, four, <laughs> there was some feet. Now, is this just a cost-saving exercise so you don't have to employ another keyboard player? Because you play them all. And I don't even know if it's humanly possible. So, so what is going on there? It's kind of like trying to replicate like on a record. There's different, you know, like a guitar sounds like a guitar and keyboards can sound like anything. So there's like a main sound, then there's a, a main synth sound, there's a piano sound, and then there's a Hammond organ sound. And so I, I kind of like, uh, I always loved Yes when I was growing up too. And I loved Rick Wakeman when he had Journey to the Center of the Earth and he was like, he had the big flowing robes and he had both hands out like that. So I was like, ooh, let me try that. And uh, I took my keyboard from an L shape to like, okay, we're gonna, let's do it like this and just go sideways. And somehow I, I figured it out. So I'm doing, and my right foot goes in my right hand, my left foot goes in my left hand and I sing. So it's like, it's definitely a challenge but once you get it into the brain, it's it's uh, foolproof. But it's something to be seen because I'm like, I remember in Dublin, I'm going, I don't know how he's doing that. I think one hand is going up one way, the other one's coming down the other way. Like I said, I'm sure there was another hand in there somewhere. Yours, <laughs> no. But anyway, it's amazing, and it is such a show. It's it's phenomenal. Basically, um, we met like about 12 years ago uh, in the very low key island of St. Bart's. And uh, I want to say we got on from the minute we met, which included uh, your wife, Lexi, and my wife, Asia. And um, I have to say, Lexi, she's a legend to me, right? She's a legend. I mean, she's an artist, as in a painter artist, not, not a musical artist. I don't even know if she can play anything. I've got no idea. She knows more about rock and roll than you and I put together, right? There's no question about that. And, and, and she would just correct you all the time. Even if you think you know it, is she there? No, no. <laughs> She's one of my favorite people. And um, it's funny because she would just say, ah, oh, you know what? I can't stand the music of Bon Jovi. You go, all right, well, you know, that's not very supportive. <laughs> No. It's not her favorite band. <laughs> no, no, but, but the fact is, of course, she's there, solid as a rock. It's just her thing to say, I think, because she likes alternative rock. That's her favorite. But it's very funny. And, and I think when I first met you, if someone said to me, was I a Bon Jovi fan? I would have said no. 
And then now I've seen you play a few times as a band, got to know you as a friend, and I'm there singing along with the rest of them. I mean, honestly, it's, uh, it's very catchy. You're my guilty pleasure. Yeah, so despite what Lexi thinks, I figure I'm a Bon Jovi fan. So, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was a, that was a big milestone for you guys, wasn't it? It was something that was too long in coming, according to Howard Stern and a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, we were, el it's supposed to be in America, because we, we made the English uh, Hall of Fame for the UK, but they don't have the stipulation in America was it has to be 25 years after the release of your first record. So we were, uh, we were uh, uh, ready for it, or we passed the requirement nine years we, we waited and like our first year was no and then the second year was no and then the eighth year was still was no and then the ninth year we're like you know who cares about this any you know fuck you and um then uh we got nominated and we're like okay this matters <laughs> and then we got in and we're like it was you know you're, it's 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 a great honor because there's only a, a handful of humans that are in that you know my my biggest one it's you know elvis it's the yeah. Beatles, it's the Rolling Stones, you know, it's Chuck Berry, it's, it's the beginning of wh where rock and roll started. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree. And I think that, I, I think there's some rock and roll snobbery, the reason why it took you nine years. Totally unjustified in my book, but there, you know, there is, there can be a bit of that, can't there? You know, and I, it sort of feels a bit like that because Howard Stern, who, who sort of did your, what do you call it? He which did your introduction was yeah. brutal. What he was saying to the to the industry, basically, wasn't he? And uh, it was very, very funny and truthful. You know, it was like we were sort of like the hair. They they lumped us into like a hair band of the eighties. Yeah, yeah. But the yeah. one thing we always separated was uh, us was was me, a keyboard player. So like we wanted to happen, and all of a sudden there's strings and wind, and it sounds like you know a, 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 a Clint Eastwood western, you know, and you're painting a picture. Even the beginning of Living on a Prayer, where it just fades in, and there's this whole it creates a mood. We had something different because that's what keyboards do, and we kind of got lumped into this world. And then they're like, well, there's still a, a hairband. You're like, uh, it's 36 years later, and uh, no, you know, we're still uh, nobody else survived. And we not only survive, we thrive So around the world. So you look and go, okay, well, you're wrong. Yeah. But you know, you don't do yourself any favors. You're still carrying all that hair. I don't blame you, by the way, but, <laughs> but, you, but you have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and, and I think, you know, I've made you quite a bit of jewelry over the years, but the thing I was, I'm most proud of was that when Lexi asked me to make you something really personal for you to wear on that night, and I, I don't know if you want to tell anybody about that piece because it was so personal to you and, um, and a real challenge, but I loved making it. Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I've worn that every day. And it came there like the day of the ceremony. So like, go, 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 go. We got it. Bang, it's on the neck. And uh, I haven't taken it off since. You know, it's like every day when I suit up for my day, that goes on the neck. And yeah. uh, it's a great, it's... This it's uh, looks like a record, and it says you know it says Bon Jovi Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 2018 in small little letters, and then around it is uh, like a piano, two black keys, three three black keys, two black keys, so it's diamonds, and then 
you made it when you flip it over. I have a Joker tattoo and you carve that. And then the back of it is my Joker tattoo, which is, it's just amazing. Yeah, well, like I said, I was, uh, I'm proud of that piece because I felt, I know you were every day and I often, you know, when I'm with you, show, people are always asking you about it. You flip it over, you tell the story. It's kind of cool. Everybody right. knows like a chip from Vegas. Yeah. It's the same thickness, the same diameter as, as, a, as a poker chip. I think it's probably pretty obvious from this, but you're just a very, very approachable person. You're, you know, you're, you're super cool. You're just uh, an easy, easy guy. And maybe that's the, the New Jersey bit. I don't even know. But I've never seen you once tired of the, the kind of harassment that's inevitable. You know what I mean? You've had it your whole life, really, your adult life. And yet every single person... Um, who comes to you, wants a selfie, wants to touch your hair, I don't even know what, but they want something from you. And, and I mean, do you ever flip? Do you ever just lose it on them? I've never seen you lose it. No, no, I never lose it. It, it is a pretty funny story. We were with our friends eating at this, uh, they belong to a country club, so I had to wear like uh, non-jeans. And uh, we're sitting there and this, I'm eating my salad. Like literally I have the fork at my mouth and this lady's face is right here, right? And she comes in and, she's, and she starts touching my hair. I'm like, and I, I'm like eating. And she's right next here. I'm like, uh, can you just give me one minute? Can I just finish the salad, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so before we get on to uh, the piece that completes your picture so far, which is the musicals, but before that, I, I just want to talk about injuries because <laughs> I, I've known, we went to a whiskey tasting event in, in, where were we, in St. Bart's or somewhere, I don't know. So somehow you managed to walk into a window with your fingers out straight and then chip a bone no one else would have chipped a bone and um and then of course you've had major surgery and then when i'm reading up about you i i read that you severed a finger early in your career that could have been the end of it i mean honestly dave you know what with the south american parasite and and the fact that you you and tom hanks became the poster boys of covid before it was fashionable i, I don't even know how you're still here <laughs> I think it's going to be me and Keith Richards maybe at the end and the cockroaches. <laughs> these are these are just life things. Anyway, whatever. It doesn't matter. It was just that, well, like I said, I was doing a bit of research. I think, gee whiz, I knew about a few of these. Well, I, I knew about your mate because you had really big surgery on, on your neck that was affecting your ability to play, wasn't it? Which is an amazing thing that you're completely cured. And that was a genetic, was that a genetic yeah, that was another genetic gift from my from my parents. Uh, they, the hits keep coming, as they say, uh, but I keep fighting it off. <laughs> yeah, but that was an extraordinary period. So, musicals. So I, I think you you need to talk us through how, why, and what, what kicked it off, etc. Probably like in in the nineties. I wanted to, I wrote, a, I wrote a couple songs on Bon Jovi Records. And I got a publishing deal. And then I wanted to learn the, the craft of writing. 
So I said to the publisher, put me with all your songwriters and let me learn, let me keep, you know, honing the craft and learning the craft because songwriting definitely is a craft. And I said, so I learned it. I worked at it for uh, at least a year. I had like 10 great songs on the shelf and he got one of them, I got covered. Uh, and Clive Davis called me up and said it was the best song he heard all year. It was called This Time by Curtis Tigers. He like stopped the record, put, it, put that song on it. Curtis did it, loved it. It was a top 40 and then that was it. And I was like, okay, my publisher said, well, why don't you write another song? I said, I'm not gonna write another one. You sell the other nine. You know, I'll replace them once you, once you can get them covered. And he said to me, what about musicals? And I went, what are they? And he said, I can get you 18 songs covered eight times a week. I went, I'm interested. <laughs> and that's really the reason why. And then it started, I had one in 1998 was based on uh, Sweet Valley High, which was uh, a book series. And it was just a little too early in the world of rock and roll. It was loud and rock and, and uh, it, it just was too early. And then I got a script in 2001 from, my, from an agent and it was Memphis. And I read the script. Uh, Joe DiPietro was the book writer and he wrote lyrics in there. So I, I heard every one of the songs for some reason. I just heard it. I called him up. I said, I hear every one of your songs. He's like, okay, great. Uh, you hear anything else? I go, there's other voices in my head, but we can, we'll talk about that later. Um, and I said, uh, he said, pick a song and then get it to me. So that was at noon. And I knew FedEx, or so it wasn't the internet, wasn't reliable then, it was dial-up. And um, I knew I had till 6.30 for FedEx. So I immediately went down and I said, I'm also a lyricist, can I add anything? He goes, yeah, add what you want. So I took the one song, Music of My Soul. I wrote the full chorus of it. I, I, wrote, I wrote a verse. I got down here in, in my studio. I put a drum machine on, I played piano, I played bass, played guitar, I sang lead, I sang all the background vocals, put organ and strings on it, burned it to a CD, made it to FedEx at 6.30, you know, to the guy as he's picking up the stuff in the box, got it to him and it was on Joe's doorstep the next morning. And he listened to it and it's the same exact way it is in the show. He's like, okay, you got a gig. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you know, yet again, if you'd, uh, you, you said to me, uh, what's a musical? And I would have said, okay, I hate musicals. But uh, we went to see Memphis and of course, you know, Beverly Knight was, was the lead singer and she's amazing. I mean, I know you thought she was amazing. The songs are amazing. And you come out and you just go, okay, that was a brilliant night at the theatre. It was fantastic. Uh, we really loved it because it, it transferred to London. And you won, you won a lot of awards for Memphis, didn't you? Yeah, you know, then it led to, I mean, it was all a long painful journey because we had a couple of it took eight years to get it to broadway so once we did get it to broadway in 2009 and 10 season uh we were an original musical most of them are, are songs from that are already out there and they collect the songs and put them together and then have a story around it and mm. ours was ours was this was written for the stage and we won four tonys you know we killed it our first time out yeah wow it was it was excellent so so then um Toxic Avenger. That was quite a riotous sort of romp through an apocalyptic version of New Jersey, which I'm sure is not anywhere near Colt's neck, but probably by the turnpike somewhere, is it? I don't know. It was very funny. So it was at the same time as we were doing Memphis, actually, in that same season. 
And that's, we won off-Broadway and Broadway that same season to win both. So that was a smaller show. We had already kind of written, we were doing both at the same time, Joe and I, and Joe DiPietro. And then we put one on Broadway, one off-Broadway, and polar opposites. You know, Memphis is about the first white DJ to put black music on the radio, interracial love affair in 1950. It was illegal for a white person, a black person in, in Memphis to be you know, let alone married to hold hands or do anything. It was very, very racially divided. And then we have Toxic Avenger, which is the first superhero of New Jersey. So it's quite, quite opposite of it. I thought that was Manzo. <laughs> it is. <laughs> For those who are not <laughs> from the area, Manzo is one of uh, Dave's close, close friends. And, um, and uh, I nearly killed Manzo once, didn't I? Do you remember in, in Miami when... For, for all the time I'd known you, I thought you were all from a place called Cold Snacks. Uh, because the way you say Cold Snack sounded like Cold Snacks. And when, when I'm saying to you, don't you have any hot snacks? <laughs> and when Manzo realised what we were talking about, he went purple and fell off the couch. <laughs> like Cold Snacks? What's a hot snack? You, you actually live in cold snacks, yeah. So, um, yeah, so look, we, it brings us on to Diana. And um, this, is, this is quite a story as well, obviously. How could it not be? It's about Princess Diana and the controversy that surrounds the royal family, which is a bit like your parentage. It just keeps on giving, doesn't it? I mean, it just never stops. And uh, this has got to be good for the Broadway debut. So Joe and I were working on another musical. We were about six years. The average is six years, six to seven years. And we were in it for five, six years, called Chasing the Song, about the first woman song publisher in the Brill Building in the 1960s, when in the fact there was no such thing because women needed a man to co-sign for any kind of loan. So it was like championing women's rights. And all of a sudden we were, were close, we were doing a reading, we we're getting close to Broadway, we had a production, and Joe DiPietro goes, hey, what about a musical on Princess Diana? I was like, you know, has anyone been done before? I said, well, there's a couple things, but nothing, you know, really was big. I went, okay, well, let's give it a shot. You know, there's something out there, but let's let's do this. We 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 put our, you know, put the uh, irons in the fire. And I said, write write a write a draft of it. So we wrote a draft, and I loved it. And he said, okay. He goes, I know you could you could write rock and roll, but let's see if you can write a song for the Queen, because nobody sings in real life, I guess. They sing Happy Birthday and God Save the Queen, and she can't even sing God Save Me, I think. I think it's, I don't think she sings that in the first person. The you first never person. know. <laughs> Two or three gins down. Gin yeah, down, God Save Me. Um, so we did it, and that was the first song, and you know, I put like snare drums and regal horns and, and did this song, and uh, it was, Joe loved it, it was great. And then we started writing and writing and writing, and. I came up for the concept that everyone, it's, it's the love triangle. Like it's what story you want to tell. And for us, as Americans, we're kind of removed from it. So we don't have any, it's almost like if a Brit wrote uh, Camelot about the Kennedys. You know, you don't have, you're, you're looking at it from far away. And America just loved her and that's all that everybody did. It didn't matter what was going on and nobody understands kings, queens, anything. So we wrote about this human story about it's a love triangle. You know, it's a, the, the one guy loves the married girl. 
he can't be with her. The young virginal girl who's beautiful loves the prince. He can't, doesn't love her, but he's forced to by his mother. So we kind of wrote this human story. And then I had an idea to make each one of the characters have a musical voice. Like Diana was pop rock of the 80s, but always looking back through modern eyes. Charles was like a string quartet, you know, um, but, and, but still in the form of a rock song. Camilla was like, um, like light FM, like acoustic guitar kind of thing, you know, not soft rock, if you will. Uh, the Queen was very regal. And then I took the Clash, uh, uh, the paparazzi and made him like the Clash. Like, you know, just in your face, guitars. And, and then it was great in concept. And then we started to do it. And then I wanted to have them where they kind of live on each other. Like there's one part where it's a classical song and I wrote uh, by Bach. And then I wrote a, a rock song on top of that at the same time which sounded easier in theory than, uh, than trying to work it out. And we did it. It's probably the fastest because it's such a great subject. And we, we, we were on stage in three years and we had uh, the pandemic. We had nine previews on Broadway and then the pandemic shut us down. And then after, then I got sick three days later for like three months. And then after I got better, then we're like, how could we do something that's different? And we, uh, we got Netflix. We said, well, once we're allowed to go back into the theater, let's film this thing on Netflix, put it out first of a movie musical, if you will. There you go, so the world can enjoy it. It's in dubbed in like 20 languages. You can see it and then come see it live. I'm coming to see it live. Yes, you are. So, amazing, Dave. You're an amazing guy. You're, you're so talented and um, you know, and then on the back of that, you've been back in the studio, you're rehearsing, you go back on the road <laughs> with the boys again. And where did you start in Australia? When, when does the Bon Jovi tour start again? Well, with this, you know, we were gonna be in Australia. We, you know, a couple months ago, we got shot down on that because they just closed their- Oh yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. So we're looking, hopefully, you know, next, it's next year, definitely next year, but maybe the spring, you know, we got a couple of things on the table, but it's, uh, it all depends on when, you know, when the pandemic burns out, when it's just done. Yeah. Well, you could be welcome to come to London. You can do anything you want here now. I mean, we've got football stadiums full. Everything seems to be somewhat back to normal, which, which does feel really good. Uh, whether it's irresponsible or not, I have no idea, but, uh, that's the way it's going. Yeah. So, so that's exciting. What will that, I mean, I know, I know it's going to be a slow start, but is that two years? What, what, when, how do you plan for that? It's... We've, we've, so maybe like 10 years ago, we probably slowed it down from, we would do the 110 shows like in 30 countries and do it in a year and a half, like go straight. And uh, Tico's our drummer. He's, uh, he talks like this and he's like, it's too much work. I'm old. I'm not doing it. So, uh, we said, okay, we'll divide that up to three years. So for the last bunch of years, we would do like 35 shows, 40 shows, and then do 40 shows the next year, 40 shows the next year, take a year off, make a record for a year, and then, you know, then repeat that. So that's been the, that's been our, the work uh, schedule for the last, which will be for the foreseeable future. Okay. Well, Dave, we've come to the end of our fascinating rummage through your golden nuggets. And uh, just as I thought it was, it was nothing less than fascinating. You're a, you're a legend, you really are. You're one of the world's greatest keyboard artists, I think, and musical talents. 
and probably most importantly, you're still a solid Jersey boy, uh, uh, for sure. I can vouch for that. So thank you so much and uh, never stop living on a wing and a prayer as far as I'm concerned. So uh, thank you, Dave Bryan. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, my friend.